Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 3. I told you last week that we uh, had been going sort of uh, bit by bit, and we're about to jump into the deep end, if you will, and to start to cover a much larger uh, chapters as a whole and even multiple chapters at a time. And so today we begin to do that. My prayer this week has been uh, really a simple one, and it was simply this, that as we come to a very familiar text, One that many of us who, if you grew up in church or have been associated with church, even for for a brief time, uh, you are familiar, if not seen the movie or look at the flannel graphs in Sunday school, like you're familiar with the burning bush and the story of the burning bush. And so my prayer has been that our tendency, my own tendency, is when I come before a text that I already know, that I'm already deeply acquainted with, that the tendency is just sort of just to look past it and to write it off. And, uh, or on the other side, it's to go digging a little bit deeper in places and, and, and sort of to come up with things that don't really exist in the text as well because we're so familiar with it. And one of the things that I love so much about Exodus chapter three is that though the story is familiar, It is deeply, deeply doctrinal. And what I mean by that is that there is so much in this story that teaches us about the character and about the nature of God and informs our understanding of who God is and how he interacts with creation. And at the same time, it's this reminder that when we see ourselves, we ought to see ourselves in light of how we understand who God is. One of my favorite things to do at my home is we have, uh, it's, a, it's a, not really a fire pit, if you will, but it's just a, a place in the dirt in my grass that we throw logs and we light them on fire and then we just sit around and we talk and are just there. And, uh, and, and the weather has sort of made this transition for us to where now it's not too cold, but it's not hot. And really the temperature is absolutely perfect to have a fire outside. And so last night, uh, we, Haley and I were talking about this, let's have a fire and kind of hang out. And so we we kind of did what we normally do on those nights, set up the chairs and throw the, uh, make the fire and, and we just kind of hang out. And uh, one of the things about fire is that fire can be this very inviting thing, right? Like it, it brings warmth, it brings comfort, it brings uh, certain feelings that will sort of elicit over you, whether it's in your home, uh, inside your fireplace, or it's outside on a fire pit. But fire is also one of those things which can bring absolute terror and destruction. It can take your life. It's dangerous uh, when the fire is, is misused or, or even abused. And so oftentimes when we gather around together as a family, uh, what we're looking for is we're watching our little children that we enjoy being by the fire. We are constantly on edge, making sure that they don't jump in the fire or rather older brother or even dad uh, starts to dare people to let's go jump over the fire and see what happens. But fire has one of those things where it is inviting and it is comforting, yet at the same time, fire can be extremely dangerous. And so in Exodus chapter three, we have God appearing as a fire, welcoming and inviting, yet at the same time, extremely dangerous. And so I wanna read through beginning in verse one of Exodus chapter three, where God's word begins to say this to us. He says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now I want you to notice just in the very beginning that we have this extraordinary man that God is about to call to do some remarkable things, but we find him in Exodus three, verse one. What is he doing? He's tending flock out in the middle of the wilderness. 
He's doing an ordinary thing. So often I think that we believe the lie somehow that we can be used by God and equipped by God or trained by God only so that we would uh, have the spotlight, if you will, or be seen on platforms or, or to become these great influencers when I think most of what God does with his people is he sets us to task doing very ordinary things for him. And what he's calling us to do in that ordinary is just to be faithful, to just be faithful. Here we see Moses in this moment doing these mundane, ordinary things, and he's just being faithful. Verse two goes on and he says, and the angel of the Lord then appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. The bush was burning, but it was not consumed. Now, Hebrew scholars go back and forth at the beginning of this verse, and they look at that phrase, the angel of the Lord. And so some of the debate within the books is, was it an angel that was talking to Moses at this point, or was it actually the Lord? And what we know as we read all of Scripture and sort of understand this verse in light of what God's doing elsewhere is oftentimes God will use this phrase, the angel of the Lord appeared. And it's a phrase that really uh, points to the idea that it is God directly speaking to Moses. And we know this because of what Moses does a couple of verses later where he hides his face from God and God says, don't, don't look upon me. And so we know that in this moment, God is dealing directly audibly with Moses. Now this scene is so famous in scripture that if you run in Christian circles, we, we, we say things like, I had this burning bush moment in my life where God spoke to me and I knew immediately that he told me what it was that I was supposed to do. And I walked with obedience and I followed what it was that he commanded. And so God speaks to Moses Moses in this moment, and he gives him a literal burning bush that is not burned, that is not consumed. It was burning, yet it was not consumed. What scholars will say that in this moment is this is what's known as a theophany. And this is where God will appear and make this visible manifestation and he will visibly make himself known as the invisible God and he will appear in certain ways. And for a brief moment, in this moment in Moses' life, a moment in time, a moment in space, that bush was the temple of the living God. His visible presence on earth as he speaks audibly to Moses in this moment. Verse three says, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. For when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. And then God says, do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet for the place on which you are standing. It is holy ground. It has been set apart. It has been consecrated to me. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then notice what it says Moses did. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And what's happening in this moment is God's presence at that burning bush. It was a physical miracle that communicated a spiritual truth to him. 
You see, even before God began to reveal and tell Moses who he was, God in this moment was already showing Moses who he was by appearing in this way, by burning the bush, yet not consuming the bush. Think about this for just a moment. Anything that you would set fire to, it would be destroyed. It would get burned up. All of the wood that we burned last night to have a fire, it's all gone now. It's, it's ashes and it's rubble and it's been removed. Yet in this moment, the bush burns, yet it was not consumed. You see, the Lord will often show you before he tells you, even though he's already told you in his word. And that's an act of kindness on God's behalf, is it not? You see, we don't need burning bush moments in our life. Why? Because we already have uh, the ultimate revelation. God has spoken through his word. And so we don't need bushes to, to set on fire to speak to us because we already have the revealed word. Enough, if it, what's in here is enough to sustain us and to prolong us and to give us everything that we need. Yet oftentimes, despite that, God in his kindness, he will allow you to see something before he reminds you of that reality. And that's a kindness that our Father gives to us and he shows us and, and he's doing this in Moses' life. And like this burning bush, as God begins to reveal himself to Moses before ever doing anything to it, why he says the bush was on fire but it was not consumed is this is speaking to the reality of who God is and his character. Meaning this, that our God, he never runs out of fuel. He never grows tired and he never grows weary. His glory, it, it never diminishes. It, we, we sang that last song about show us your glory. What that means is, is that we want to see the physical display and manifestation of God's holiness. We want to see it put out. Show us your glory. Show us who you are and let us experience that and be reminded of that reality. His glory never dims. His beauty, it never fades. You know, that fire that I lit last night, it faded out and, and after a while, it wasn't so warm sitting by it because it was just ashes and it was just rubble. But the reality of our God and him revealing himself as this burning bush that was not consumed is he always keeps burning bright. It's because he doesn't get his energy from anyone else but himself. He needs no fuel. He is completely self-sufficient. He exists outside of anything else and his otherness. It is, there is nothing like it anywhere in existence. God is completely self-existent. He is completely self-sufficient in his eternality. He needs no one. And here Moses, in this moment, he looks at this transcendent essence and display before him, the cause and the creator of the universe, the one who spoke something into existence when there was nothing on which everything depends and exists and gets its very being from. Here Moses looks at it directly as God begins to speak to him in this way. But notice what he says in verse five, Moses, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing standing is holy. It is set apart. What God is doing in this moment is he is emphasizing what theologians just simply call his transcendence. 
that the creator is better than the thing or the person in which he has created. He is above them in every which way. And he's saying, I am holy, I am set apart. You know, this is the first instance in scripture all the way through Genesis up until this point in Exodus 3 where God begins to talk about himself in the context of his holiness. And he does it speaking to Moses. For this ground that you walk upon, it is set apart. It is uh, separate. It is not just righteousness, but it is otherness that is on display, this distinction that there is no one like me, Moses. You've not encountered anyone like me. You don't know anyone like me, that I am above and I am over. And notice what it says when Moses recognizes this and he says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice what Moses does. It says that he hides his face for he was afraid to look at God. Later in Exodus 33, we get this statement in talking about the presence of God. God says, you cannot see my face or surely you will die. And in this moment, Moses was experiencing that reality. And so he hides as he comes in front of of holiness. He begins to realize who it is that he's dealing with and, and who it is that's talking. When you come, listen to me, if you say that I have encountered God at a church service or a concert or whatever that is, the reality is when we actually encounter a holy God, we become distinctly aware of how unholy we actually are. And it's one of the chief indicators to know, have I really experienced and and has God really come and did did his spirit really fall? Because when we know that he actually falls and he moves and people are changed, it's because we recognize that we are in the presence of a holy God and we realize how unholy and how unclean we actually are. And we're like Moses that we take off our shoes or we hide our face because we are afraid to look at him because he is the, the fire that burns the bush but does not consume it. He is the fire that, that can burn and, and can destroy, yet at the same time can be a welcome invitation to come and just sit with. And I want you to see this sitting with as God begins to tell Moses what he's gonna do. And so we see the transcendence of God. Now I want you to see the imminence of God, the nearness of God. Read with me in verse seven, where he says this, and the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, the slavery, the bondage. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, verse 10, I will send you to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the world, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, but who am I? Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and I should be the one to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he says, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Years ago, I read a book called Knowing God, and J.I. Packard, in the beginning of that book, he talks about what wisdom is and knowing God and, and then knowing who we are in light of that. I, I actually didn't realize at the time when I read that book, it's actually a quote that's attributed to the reformer John Calvin. And Calvin, in talking about this passage of Scripture in his Institutes, he simply says this. He says, nearly all wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. But notice the order in which he says it. Knowledge of God first. If you want to know yourself better, you need to know God. You need to understand God. You know, Calvin goes on and he, and he says this, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless this, listen to this, he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. So here's what that speaks to. You wanna know yourself better today. You want to understand why you do the things that you do and what makes you tick in certain ways, your motivation, your responses, your emotions, your, your feelings, all of those things, then the admonition here in the text is simply this, pursue knowing God first. And then when you begin to understand him, you're going to be able to understand yourself better. It's the flaw of, of so many personality profiles, whether it's Myers-Briggs or, or Enneagram or whatever it is that you're into, whatever the kids are into these days, I don't know, but it's the flaw of the personality exams. Why? Not that those things are not helpful, not that those things don't help us understand why it is. What, what becomes a problem is when we begin to pursue those things over knowing and understanding God and not contemplating him first, and then seeing myself in light of that. And so Moses says, who am I that I should go to the most powerful man in all of the world? But notice the promise that God gives in verse 12. But I will be with you. I'll be with you. You can do hard things, Moses. In fact, you can do one of the hardest things that any human being has had to do up until this point to free my people of 400 years of slavery and bondage. You are gonna be the one that helps rescue them and delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh. I'll be with you. You can do hard things, Moses. And I think what God is saying in that verse is simply this, the call to God's service always comes with the promise of God's presence. And so when you're going to do things, in particular, do things for the Lord and, and on behalf of the Lord, the promise is that God is always going to be with you. And just as he promises Moses his, his presence to go and speak before Pharaoh, the same God who is keenly aware of the plight of the Hebrews, the same God is aware and he promises to be with them, but he also promises to be with you. Then when he calls you, to endure hard things and to experience hard things and to suffer for hard things, he promises to be with you in the midst of it. His promise is always accompanied by his presence. But I wanna linger just for a few moments on this existential crisis that Moses has in this moment about asking who, who am I? 
He grew up in the most powerful family in all the land, later was kicked out and ostracized, and now he finds himself just, just shepherding out in the middle of the wilderness. He was a nobody. He was a known name, yet God decided to use him. Yet in this moment, Moses says, who am I? Do you know that that's one of the predominant questions of most young people today is who am I? In other words, what we mean by that question is, what is my identity rooted in and how, how am I seeing myself and how are others seeing me? And we wrestle with this question who am I and, and who am I be becoming? You know, we all have uh, what we would just call these fake identities, these faux identities that we, that we take on, that we assume. And, and sometimes it's a, a physical appearance thing, but I think more often than not, it resides deep in the, in the innermost parts of our hearts. And what it manifests itself as, when we ask the question, who am I? So many of us wanna be the person, when we ask the question, who am I? We simply would say, I am the one that needs to be in control. That my identity is, is rooted in always trying to be in control of people, of circumstances, of opportunities. I'm the one that controls. And we find identity in that. But I think also, more than that, not just I'm, I'm in control, when we ask the question, who am I and what I'm becoming, so many of us, especially in particular college students, we find our identity and who I am based on what I do or what I'm going to do. And so my identity is found in my career. For pastors, we, we find identities in, in being a pastor. What do I do if I'm, if I'm not a pastor? We do this within any vocation. It's an attorney or, or, or a doctor or a phys, whatever that may be. Listen to me. Your identity has nothing to do with what you do. It doesn't have to do with vocation. It doesn't have to do with what kind of house you live in or what kind of car you drive or what Greek life you're in. Those things don't make up our identity. And in this moment, Moses is wrestling with this question, but who am I? And God's like, listen, you're gonna be the one that delivers all of our people from the hand of Pharaoh if you would let me use you. Because Moses, your identity is not in being a shepherd. It's not even being delivered uh, from the Nile River and being saved and grown up in Pharaoh's court, your identity is rooted deeply in who I, God, say you are. And the same that was true of Moses is true of us today. In verse 13, it goes on and says that Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Old Testament scholar, Victor Hamilton, he says this about this phrase, I am who I am. Theologians for thousands of years have debated what in the world does this mean? And Hamilton simply puts it this way, that the most literal translation that you can gather out of this phrase, when God says to Moses, I am who I am, Hamilton says, it literally reads out, is I be who I be. I am who I say I am. I be who I be. As, as broken and as awkward as that sounds, the most literal way to read that out of the Hebrew is I be who I be. I am who I am. Say this to my people. Dutch theologian Herman Bovnik says this about this phrase, I am who I am. He says that God is that which he calls himself and he calls himself that which he is. 
And this is what it means when God says, I am who I am, what he is saying in this moment. Listen to this. He's saying in that moment, Moses, I am who I am. You tell them, I am who I am, has sent you. And what he means by this is he is speaking to the, the mysteries and the, and the wonderful mysteries of God and who he is. He is speaking to his eternality that he never changes. I am who I am means that he is completely self-existent. And to be self-existent means that God does not have any kind of unmet needs or unsatisfied desires. He does what he wants when he wants it. He doesn't need help. He's not codependent on anyone. He does not live or move or have his being in anyone other than himself. I am who I am. It speaks to his complete and utter self-sufficiency, which, which means this for you and me today, that one of the realities of the gospel and Jesus' message is that God does not need us. Do you know that? Do you know that when he says, I am who I am, that means that he is completely self-existent, he can, he's sufficient, and he will accomplish his purposes with or without you. But here's the beauty of it. Though he doesn't need us, he chooses to bring us in, to use us, to allow us to be a part of a redemptive work of a God who is saving and reconciling the world to himself. And he has chosen to use people to accomplish his task. Like that's in his sovereign plan is to use you and me to be a part of the work that he has created for us to be, to find blessings and satisfaction and hope and contentment only when we are working and deliberately living on the mission that he has sent us. You see, like that fire that appeared before Moses and speaking to his character, God is a fire that, that burns, that does not burn out. See, God is a fire and he has no tendency to destroy its very energy. God is not consumed by the circumstances and the situations of the Lord. We live and because we live, we, we ultimately die. But the reality is God lives forever. He has no beginning and he has no in. He needs no rest. He wastes no energy. I am who I am. He works and he is never weary. I am who I am. He works and he is never tired. I am who I am. He operates unspent. He loves forever. I am who I am. All through the ages, the fire burns on unconsumed and it never falters. I am who I am. And Moses hears from the Lord that God is gonna use him to deliver him from the hand of the Pharaoh, of the most sovereign and supreme ruler of the land. You tell them I am who I am has sent you. And you know, just as God sends Moses to accomplish his mission, God in his goodness, still being I am who I am, he sends us out into this city, into our schools, into our workplaces, sent by I am who I am to live on a mission just like Moses.